if you have your Bible with you, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find today's passage on uh, page 1239. 1239. Since it's been a few weeks, as a, a quick recap of the book so far, where we've been so far in Galatians, Paul is writing to correct false teaching that was being accepted in these Galatian churches in the region of Galatia. Uh, teaching that claimed that a person had to become a Jew before they could receive the grace of Christ. Had to be faithful to the law of Moses before grace from Christ could come. Uh, In the first section of the book, Paul responded to the specific attacks on his ministry, on his motivation for ministry in Galatia. Uh, Basically just pointing the Galatians to their memory of his time with them. You remember how when I was with you is is a common refrain in those first few chapters. Then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul moves out of the response to personal attacks and more into a direct theological response to the theological argument made by the false teachers. Uh, Responding from a theological perspective, arguing from a theological perspective that not only is it not a requirement that someone keep the law of Moses before coming to Christ, even if it were a requirement, it is impossible. Instead, rather, the penalty of failing to keep the law is precisely what we needed to be redeemed from. And Jesus kept the law for us in our place. Then, of course, having made that clear, Paul turns in chapter 5 and 6 to uh, the more practical question of now what? What do we do now that we have established that we are saved by grace? Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived perfectly and you get the record. Now what? How shall we then live? How does that affect our lives now? What does it look like in practice? Most of chapter 5 deals with our individual response to the grace of Christ. Uh, Who are we individually before the Lord? Most of chapter 6, when we get there, is going to be predominantly about our corporate response to God's grace. How do we respond together as a body? Uh, We'll be focused this morning on the last couple of verses of chapter 5, but I'm going to read that whole final section of chapter 5 just to remind us of the context and where we've been. Uh, Before I read, though, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak His Word into our hearts. If you're able, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Galatians 5. Lord Jesus, we come to Your Word because only in Your Word can we find truth. Only in your word can we see your face clearly. And yet, we will twist the truth that you give us in your word if you do not restrain our sin. Our hearts, our minds, every part of us is polluted by our sin. And we will turn away from you unless you restrain us. So we beg you, Father, Son, Spirit, restrain our sin today. Restrain our inclination to make this all about us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work your truth into us. That we might understand it. That, we might, that it might root into our hearts and grow and produce a crop beautiful to you. The fruit that you have ordained for us. Let your name be praised in the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, uh, we're going to be focusing this morning on verses 24 to 26, but I'm going to start reading in verse 16 just to get us back into it. This is God's word. I say to you, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I have only ever been sailing a couple of times, uh, went with the Boy Scouts, and, and even at that, the, the few times that I've been, it was only on a sunfish. If you're familiar with boats and the water, you'll know that a sunfish is a very small boat. Uh, it's about the smallest possible boat you can get on and still have a sail that functions. Uh, sometimes in the older days, it was called a dinghy. Uh, it's under 14 feet from stem to stern, which sounds like a lot until you realize that it is less wide than George is tall. There is really no space on that boat for but one person, unless they're really small people. Um, That said, I enjoy stories about the sea and sailing, and so I've read quite a few. Uh, And here's the question. When you think about sailing, when you're actually using sails, not just on the water in a boat, when you're actually sailing, is being filled by the wind an experience, or is it a habit? Is being filled by the wind on, when you're sailing an experience or a habit? Now, the answer is yes. It's both. Catching the wind on a sailboat is clearly an experience, even in a sunfish, tiny little boat. The couple of times that I've been out, I can remember the feeling of being carried forward by the mighty power from somewhere else, catching the wind. You're not actually going all that fast, but it feels like you're going fast. You can feel the power of the wind propelling you. It's exhilarating. At the same time, catching the wind is also a habit. If you don't put the sail up properly, if you don't pull the main sheet fast, that is, you know, hang on, hang on to the rope and tighten it down good, uh, if you don't adjust the sail properly, It doesn't matter how much wind there is or which direction it's blowing, you're not going to catch it, and you're not going to get propelled anywhere. Even if the wind is blowing exactly the direction you want to go, if you don't make a habit of trimming your sails properly, you're not going to take any value from the wind. In that sense, at least, sailing is the art of attentive responsiveness to external power. Attentive responsiveness to external power. You rely entirely on external power to get you anywhere. Sailors never imagine that they are propelling themselves by their own strength. At the same time, you have to respond attentively to whatever the wind is doing 
which comes through cultivating awareness and skill and good habits. Being filled with the Spirit is the same, involves the same both-and situation. We pursue the experience of being filled with the Spirit, and we reject all alternatives. In different parts of the New Testament, Paul uses the language of filling, of drenching, of drinking, of pouring, being filled with the Spirit. We rely entirely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than on our strength if we want to get anywhere in Christ. But at the same time, we also develop habits, specific habits. We respond attentively to what the Spirit is doing in and through us. And the capacity to do that comes through awareness and skill and practice. Our passage this morning is compact. It's very short. But it is nevertheless a precise summation of the life and the temptations of a Christian in the world today. Because we are alive by the Spirit at work in us, therefore we are called to mortify the flesh, to vivify the Spirit, and to glorify God alone. We are called to mortify the flesh, to vivify the Spirit, and to glorify God alone. First, we mortify the flesh. Now, this phrase is probably something that you've heard before. Uh, It's a relatively common refrain in church history, Christian history, particularly in uh, our specific stream of theology, Reformed theology. But we don't talk like that, do we? That's not a phrase that we typically use much. Mortify the flesh. What does that mean? What does it mean to mortify the flesh? Should we be looking, as many did in the monastic ages, the orders of the Middle Ages, should we be looking to literally wound ourselves, lashes and whips applied to our bodies until our bodies obey our brain's command, our soul's command to obey the Lord? Or maybe go a step further and literally kill our bodies since mortify means kill. Is that what's going on here? Obviously not. I hope it's clear that that's not what this is talking about. Please don't hear me say that. Uh, Even if it's possible to twist one verse in that direction, even if it's possible to twist one verse in that direction, when you read that one verse, 24, in the context of the whole passage, it's obvious that that is not what Paul is talking about in this passage. Likewise, killing those who you perceive to be the source of your temptation is not at all what's going on here. Uh, that In this chapter especially, but anywhere in the Scriptures, that is not the teaching of Christ. Now, I know that it's been several weeks, but remember that we said in this chapter especially, both flesh and spirit predominantly was shorthand for, that, for complex sets of, within yourself, attitudes and emotions and the actions that flow out of those attitudes and emotions uh, built on either disobedience to Christ, the flesh, or that complex set of attitudes and emotions and the actions that flow from it built on obedience to Christ, the Spirit. These are, this is the, the dichotomy, the bifurcation that we see in this passage. Uh, therefore, mortify or crucify the flesh is a directive to eliminate those attitudes and emotions and their corresponding actions that flow from the sinful nature, the unregenerate nature, the old man, the nature still controlled by all that opposes the Lord. 
Now, that idea is one that you're probably familiar with, right? Even if the language is not as familiar, not as common anymore. As a follower of Christ, we are called to look different. And in fact, we're called to be different, not just to look different from the world. To get rid of the ungodly desires and hobbies and whatnot else. (coughs) Excuse me. The ungodly desires and hobbies and whatnot that characterized each of us before and apart from Christ. And to replace them with godly desires and hobbies and whatnot. This is a well-known reality. And as much as we may try to hide from it, we recognize that it's true. The sinful nature and all the thoughts, words, and works that flow from it are to be eliminated, to be killed. As one commentator said, true Christians regard with extreme disapproval and loathing that mode of thinking and feeling which is common to all people until they are renewed. And they earnestly desire and constantly seek its complete extinction. That's our goal. As Christians, we are called to mortify the flesh, to kill the sin nature that remains in us, and to kill all the actual sins that flow from the sin nature that remains in us. So let me ask, how's it going? Are you finding yourself readily and easily turning away from the old man to the new man? If you answered yes just now, you need to repent because you're a liar. You would, be, whoops, you would be the first person in history uh, to have an easy time doing that. Thank you. It, it, it has been pointed out that Paul doesn't simply say, kill the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, crucify the flesh. Not just kill, crucify. Crucifixion was and is not an efficient way of eliminating a convicted criminal. In fact, it's just about the most inefficient way that has ever been devised. Crucifixion is not fast and it is not easy. Crucifixion produced death, not suddenly, but gradually. As much as, as much as using such a metaphor for the Christian life obviously makes logical and rhetorical sense, Jesus was crucified after all, therefore let's use this metaphor of crucifixion, right? There's a clear parallel. There seems to be more intended here. Victims of crucifixion t- typically lingered on the cross for several days. In the same way, the old man, our sin nature, takes a long time dying takes a long time dying. It's condemned, and the outcome is not in doubt. It's going to die. If you truly are in Christ, the old man will die. There's no other outcome possible. There's no doubt about that. But it will take the whole of this life, every minute of your existence, from the minute you believed Christ until the minute he calls you home or returns himself, it will take every one of those minutes to finally accomplish that death. But while it is true that you will not fully succeed in this life to kill off the sin nature, that is, it will plague us until the day we stand before Christ, yet, as Christians, we have fixed it to the cross and we are determined to keep it there until it expires. We have fixed our sin nature to the cross and we are determined to keep it there until it expires. 
or we should be. But in addition to being a slow or gradual method of execution, it is also incredibly painful. It is designed to be incredibly painful. The word, the modern English word excruciating, actually comes from the Latin excruciatus or out of the crucifixion. Literally, it means the pain that comes from experiencing crucifixion. That's excruciating. It was calculated to be the most painful possible way to die. When we are in the process of killing sin in us, of mortifying the flesh with its passions and desires, you should expect that it will hurt, that it will be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It is not painful to the body as if we had to abuse our bodies to please the Lord. It is painful to the soul. Is that true of you? Do you find that true in your life? All too often, when we see and experience the anguish of killing sin, we are more than willing to invite our sin back down from the cross and give it a basement apartment in our house. The old man doesn't want to die. And it will hurt to kill off that part of yourself that we call the sin nature. There is always something painful about putting our sins to death. And we don't like pain. We don't cope well with it. We flee from it. But at the end of the day, this pain is like the results of a necessary surgery. You know it's going to hurt. You know in advance that it's going to hurt and there's going to be pain, this pain. Uh, and you, you might have uh, days or weeks or months or even years of lingering pain as a result of this surgery. But you also know that if you avoid that pain, you will surely die. When you're contemplating a surgery, you're not much looking forward to the pain part. None of us like pain, but death is worse. There are no shortcuts to spiritual victory in the life of the Christian. There are no shortcuts. There's no third option. You either give in to your sin and live apart from Christ, or you kill your sin by the grace of the Holy Spirit. There's no third direction. There's no third option. There's no shortcut to spiritual victory. In the same way, if you're not crucifying the old man with all its attendant pain, you will surely die. Because all who belong to Christ Jesus, not those who claim to belong to Christ Jesus, because we know there are some who claim that don't have the Lord, but all who actually do have belong to Christ Jesus, all who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's not a command. That's a statement. The work of the Spirit of grace in the believer is such that all true Christians will be at work crucifying the flesh. Fitfully maybe, half-heartedly sometimes, with stumbling and failure, without doubt. But every Christian, everyone who belongs to Christ, is about the work of mortifying the flesh, of crucifying the flesh with its desires. But we must also be about the work of vivifying or enlivening the Spirit. 
As, as has been said before, if you try to remove something from your life without replacing it with something else, the removed thing will just come right back and probably will come back with a vengeance, right? Uh, if you are habitually engaged in sin, you can't replace the sin with nothing. You can't replace the time you were spending on that sin with nothing. A vacuum wants to be filled. And the easiest thing to fill it is the thing that you just pulled out of it. You have to replace it with something else that captivates your thinking. Jesus said that when a demon is cast out, if the heart that hit, from which it has been cast out is not then filled with God, then that demon will just go get seven of his buddies and come back and take up residence again. And your condition will be exponentially worse than it was before you started. So as we are crucifying the sin nature, what are we to replace it with? What do we fill our lives with now that we are killing the flesh? What is to fill the hole in our lives and our daily experience? Paul says in verse 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now this sounds awfully familiar, right? Uh, he said in back, back in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And keep in step sounds a lot like the same thing, just said in another way. There is certainly quite a bit of overlap between uh, Paul's encouragement to walk in the Spirit and his command here to keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, there's some overlap, but ultimately they are two different words that mean two different things. In verse 16, walk is pretty much exactly the same way that we use that word. Uh, it is the process of moving at a relatively easy pace from one place to another, ambulating, we might say. Uh, it is a metaphor for the daily normal process of being alive, moving in this world from birth to death, touching all the bits in between. In verse 16, it is a statement of fact, an assumption leading to the second half of that verse, Christians walk by or with the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, on the other hand, is not a statement but a command. The word used there comes from first century Greco-Roman military life, army life. It is not simply to walk with as if we're meandering down a country lane. Rather, it is to march, to walk in step with our eyes fixed on the commander. With perfect line, with every foot falling together. Now, I've never served in the army, modern or ancient, so I can't tell you how much value there is today in marching in step as far as fighting a modern battle. I suspect the answer is not a whole lot. But in the first century, wars were fought with a Roman gladius or a short sword, a one-handed short sword. Uh, and in that method of fighting, staying perfectly in step, everybody in a line together is essential. Every man carried a sword and a shield, and when they attacked, the front rank would kneel behind the wall of shields, and the second rank would put their shield up on top to be a, just a full wall of shields there, and uh, complete protection, the, and the enemy was unable to break through. The more in step they were, whether they advanced together, or they attacked together, they defended together, they retreated together, whatever they did, they did together with that wall of shields, and the enemy couldn't get past it. But as soon as they broke step, as soon as they lost that unity, the enemy could break through far more easily. And once the enemy got around behind, it was all over but the shouting. 
If they lost the step, they began to act separately, then the enemy would break through far more easily. This is the image that Paul is using here. Keep in step with the Spirit as if He is the commander of the company of which you are a part. If we live by the Spirit, if the Spirit has made us alive in Christ, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, how do we do that? What does that look like? This is where it's going to get a little challenging for us, right? Societally, we are conditioned by Descartes' famous dictum, I think, therefore I am. We find the center of our identity in our thoughts, in what we think about ourselves. But God didn't create us to be a brain on a stick or a brain in a jar. We are embodied beings. In our very essence, we are body and soul perfectly united. So what we think in our rational mind and our spirit affects our body. And what we do in our body, with our body, affects our mind and our soul. They cannot be separated. They are perfectly united. The two sides of us, body and soul, cannot be separated. So historically, this keeping in step with the Spirit has not merely or even primarily been situated in our thoughts, but rather in our actions. Of course, our thoughts are necessary. We must think the thoughts, think the words of Christ after Him. But this keeping in step is predominantly an action that we participate in rather than a thought that we have with Him. Or rather, a set of actions, specifically what has come to be known as spiritual disciplines. The action of regular meditation on Scripture, whether you feel connected to it or not, whether it feels right or not, regularly spending time in Scripture. The action of regular prayer, either spontaneous prayer, whether you word yourself prayer, or reciting of a scriptural prayer or a prayer of the saints from long ago. The action of fasting, on and on and on. These actions that are the spiritual disciplines. On the one hand, the spiritual disciplines are so easy that any adult human being and most child human beings can do them. They're not complicated. There are no particular skills required to be alone, to be silent, to abstain from food. And yet, on the other hand, they are so hard, they're so difficult as to be so perfectly calibrated to reveal the true condition of our hearts and where our hopes are that no human being can succeed at them. Indeed, the secret of the classical spiritual disciplines and all disciplines that tame the old man The secret is how reliably they lay waste to whatever sense we may have of ourselves as competent agents in the world, as those able to control our own lives. Engaging in the spiritual disciplines will destroy that attitude first. One relatively well-known pastor put it this way. He said, take fasting and food where I can offer a personal testimony to the humbling effect of the disciplines. My annual fasts during the season of Advent and Lent are darkly comical reminders of how completely undisciplined I truly am in my relationship with food. No matter how minimal the fast I set out to practice, one Lent it was simply leaving milk out of my tea, not taking milk with his tea. 
No matter how minimal the fast I set out to practice, I find that I am almost never able to keep it to the end. Among the most pitiful moments of my life was that day, about two weeks into Lent, 14 days out of 40, not even halfway, about two weeks into Lent, when I desperately and furtively opened the refrigerator, fully aware that I was breaking the most minimal fast conceivable, but feeling completely unable to go on without milk in my tea. It was the sweetest and the bitterest cup of tea I've ever had. Spiritual disciplines are hard. In a few weeks, we're going to be beginning a series Wednesday nights that addresses this aspect of our Christian lives, that thinks through the spiritual disciplines, practices that promote keeping in step with the Spirit. I encourage you, make time in your day, in your week, uh, in your schedule to join me as we work through together what these spiritual disciplines look like and how to integrate them into our lives. We need each other in that process. It's not something you can do by yourself. We need to be built up in the body in that. Uh, obviously, we'll see uh, more information on that as we get a little closer to it, but keep that in mind as we move forward. When we practice the spiritual disciplines, we discover how deep our commitment to our own autonomy, to our own comfort is, how addicted we are to the approval of others, to the sound of our own voice, to the satisfaction of our appetites, to the exclusion of all else. We discover just how much we want others to worship us, to glorify us and fulfill our needs. In the final verse here, Paul specifically addresses what happens when we fail to walk in step with the Spirit, become conceited, or in the older translation, vainglorying, glorying in vanity and the wrong things. At its heart, this is the desire to be the commander of the army, to have everyone else march in step with me so that I can do what I want and y'all just got to keep up with me. But the same thing another way, it is a desire to overthrow God and take his place. When that is my attitude, it is utterly intolerable that anyone else receive praise or glory at all. It must entirely be directed to me. I am consumed with envy for everyone around me always, completely incapable of glorifying God for his work in and through another. I can only stand, I can only tolerate Myself being glorified and seeing what God is doing in me and being praised for that myself. Because I am supposing that the other person is trying just as hard to be in command as I am trying hard to be in command. And so then he or she becomes my rival for command rather than the soldier standing together beside me mutually defending each other. Because I see him or her as a rival rather than a brother in arms, I fight to control his actions, provoking him to combat with me rather than with the true enemy. All because my focus has slipped from the true commander and fixed on myself. Fixed on what I think is most important. On what I think is most essential for the company as a whole to be doing right now. It is my decision and you all have to obey me. Conceit. Vanity. Vainglorying. 
That way lies certain defeat. Defeat for me to be sure, but it is entirely possible for me to take the entire company down with me. For the spirit of provoking and conceit and envy to infect a church and utterly destroy it. To open up cracks in the shield wall and allow the enemy to get in. It is truly a usurping of what can only be the Lord's. Instead, in place of that, we are called to keep our eyes fixed on the true commander, the Holy Spirit. To discipline ourselves to march with Him by His grace. Taking whatever position He commands us to take, whatever role He assigns us to fulfill, Trusting Him to handle the battle as a whole in the direction of the company as a whole. Not thinking that I am greater and better and smarter than God is. But humbly submitting myself, my whole self, thoughts, words, works, to His command. Crucifying my desire to be in command, painful and slow though that crucifixion may be. And even... This desire to submit, even the willingness to crucify the old man, even that is received from him as a gift and not something that I can boast in, save in that he is doing it to me and for me and in me. Just as we are justified by grace alone, so we are sanctified by grace Alone, Even when we are commanded to participate in the things that bring about our sanctification, it is still the work of the Spirit in us alone. Even when we are commanded to participate in that sanctification by submitting to His command, it is still His work. This mystery is profound. That being made holy is both entirely the work of the Spirit and also something in which we participate. But He is faithful to His promises, and He will accomplish them all in the end. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also sanctifies and will glorify in His perfect time and wholly by His own grace and His own good pleasure. Therefore, Submit yourselves, body and soul, to be the Lord's. Keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that though we are foolish, usurping, stumbling soldiers, yet you bring us in line. And by your grace and your work in us, you make us wholly yours. And you choose to glorify yourself through what you do in us and what you use us as part of the company of your people to do, to glorify your own name. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would be at work in us today and this week and this month and the rest of our lives, that you would give us grace to crucify the old man in us. Fix our eyes on you alone. And let us focus solely on keeping in step with you. If that is to happen at all, it must be by your grace. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, give us your grace. We perish without it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship him now. If you're able, please stand as we continue to sing.